Good evening. So wonderful to be with you. I love worshiping with you. Thank you, our uh, song leaders, worship leaders tonight. That was just such a great thrill. Well, I, as I mentioned last night, I've had uh, profound experiences as a single man up until about the ninth grade. And uh, that's when I met my wife, and she was in the eighth grade. And I always tell eighth grade girls, be careful with whom you dance. You could end up with somebody like me. And because uh, that's exactly what happened. We, back in the old days, uh, when you go to a dance, often you get a dance card. Some of you old timers may remember this. And on the dance card, there are about five dances during the evening when you trade partners with one of your friends. And the guys would usually line it up, you know. And so Dillard lined me up for dance number three. And I da- danced with his date. And uh, you know, we got married five years later. So uh, it was, it's been a thrill to be a single man up until the ninth grade. Uh, however, uh, you know, when you live in the church like we do and like so many of you have, you know, you, you get to know and love people of all different backgrounds, different nationalities, different ethnic groups, both genders. And we listen to each other's stories just like we did tonight, these little short stories but we listen to the, the deeper stories of life and we enter into each other's lives. And so I've received good marital advice from single people uh, who make observations, who are godly people, who are wise and who can speak to us about uh, marriage. And likewise, uh, single people can be advised even from longtime married people like myself, I hope, because all of our studies come from the Bible. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to study portions of chapter 7, particularly that apply to single people. And I think sometimes we're not as surprised with this chapter as we should be. It really is quite remarkable. While you're turning, let me say, there's something really to be said for the single life. You may have heard about the man who got to heaven and he was told there, There are two lines, and I want you to line up in one of the two lines. One line is for henpecked husbands, and the other line is for non-henpecked husbands. And the man got up there, and the line for henpecked husbands was very long, and the line for non-henpecked husbands had only one guy in it. So he went to the short line, and he said to the guy, how come you're in the non-henpecked husband line? He said, my wife told me to. Uh, So... That's uh, sometimes we married folks, uh, we understand some of the restrictions and restraints and confines of marital life. Uh, But we're going to see that there are some real essentials for living a thoughtful, adult, single life in the kingdom of God. And if you're, say, high school age or college age, you don't know for sure, whether in the long run you'll be a single person or a married person. I have five children, five of them are married and one of them is not. And so uh, you know, I'm very familiar with, uh, very close to a situation where I have four married kids and one single child and I'm learning from all of them. But we want to look at the Bible specifically and see what this uh, means for us. So let's first of all look at 1 Corinthians 7 and go all the way up to verse 7. And let's read uh, three verses there, and then I'm going to skip a little bit and read a little bit more. Uh, And I want you to notice the first thing that we're going to study in 1 Corinthians 7 is that as single Christians, we must find genuine contentment. 
As single Christians, we must find genuine contentment. Now, if I were just creating some outline to talk about singleness out of the clear blue, I'd probably start there, but I didn't start there because of that. It's in the text. It's where Paul starts. And probably for the same reason that that's where I would start, because pastorally, I know that there are real challenges to being single, and sometimes those challenges are so profound, especially the loneliness that sometimes accompanies the single life, that we can find ourselves becoming really sometimes even bitter. But if not bitter, then just a low-grade discontent that goes with it. And so pastorally, the Apostle Paul starts there when he talks about this life. And I think it's important for us. Before we read the text, let's, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for addressing us as your children in multiple situations and giving us the guidance that we need. And we pray, all of us tonight, whether single or married, whether young or old, male or female, you will be our instructor for we are in family life and we care about each other's lives and want to learn more about that life and how to encourage each other in it. And so we pray, speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 through 9 to begin with, hear the word of God. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then skip all the way down to verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he was called for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he, was, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Amen. Now, we know from the Old Testament that from Genesis to Malachi, it seems fairly obvious that the preferred marital status for any adult is married. From the beginning of Genesis 1 and 2, chapter 2 in particular, it seems that right from creation in the garden, that the man was alone, it was not good that he should be alone, and God took a rib out of his side, didn't take a bone out of his foot, or from his cranium, but out of his side, his partner took a rib out of his side and 
created Eve and presented Eve to him. And he said, wow, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she came from man. And here was his partner. And so the institution of marriage was given us seemingly right away after we were created as male and female. And then throughout the Old Testament, it seems obvious that those who are considered blessed or married and the barren woman or the unmarried woman is seen in a situation over which she grieves with great sorrow. That's the Old Testament. So look at the New Testament. Doesn't this seem strange? It seems like a complete turnaround from the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, unlike David, who had multiple wives, many children, had family. The son of David, David's greater son, the Messiah, is single. And then you come to the one who called himself the least of the apostles, but probably we would all call him he's the greatest of the apostles, the apostle Paul. He himself chose the single life. He chose it. And in the strongest language that we can imagine, he commends it to us in the New Testament. And, you know, we can all speculate as to why this is. I have speculated myself. But certainly we can, we can realize that in the New Testament, there's a, there's a new sense of family. In the Old Testament, Messiah was going to come through natural generation. Somebody was going to be the great-grandmother of the Messiah. And, and Israel was populated through children. And so we commend marriage and having families. You come to the New Testament... And the church is populated in a different way of multiplying. It's largely through evangelism, and it's not just our tribe. It's all the nations of the world. So we go all over the world making children, making disciples. And so certainly that's changed, and we should be aware of that. And certainly in this text, especially later on in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes a point about the age in which we're living. We're between the first coming and the second coming. That's called the end times. So we live on the edge of history. The next big event in redemptive history is the return of Christ, and he could come at any moment. We're living right on the edge, and Paul says, this is an urgent day in which you're living. And we'll see those arguments later on in 1 Corinthians 7. So it's the urgency of the age in which we're living. And then, of course, there's a... There's a fuller revelation of who the Messiah is. In the Old Testament, you have a predictive revelation of something of what it'd be like. But when he comes, oh, he's so much greater than our wildest dreams would ever have imagined. And there's a new revelation of our intimacy, our union with him. We have a marriage with the Messiah. So for that reason, Paul is commending to us the satisfaction that comes from being married and being in intimate union with the Messiah himself. All these things have changed as a result of the new covenant. Now, I'm Presbyterian from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head, even though I grew up a Baptist. Boy, did I ever become a sold Presbyterian. So I see a connection between Old Testament and New, like Presbyterians typically do. And we could go into those issues of biblical theology, but even Presbyterians like me have to admit and want to admit, there, there is a disjunction of some sort. There is a difference between Old Testament experience of God and New Testament. And I think Paul is showing us that this shift 
represents a change in our mentality about the primacy of marriage as the marital estate for Christian people. Now I have to say, evangelicals don't deal with this so well. If any of our, if, if we're 25 or 30 years of age, maybe now it's more 30, 35 years of age, and I've got a single friend, I'm always trying to get him a date. I'm asking the, the woman, would you like for me to introduce you to this person or that person? It's, there's a mentality in the evangelical church that the preferred state is one of marriage. We clearly demonstrate that in the way that we behave in the typical evangelical church. We'll even use language like, you know, when you get married, you get completed. And my 35-year-old daughter says, well, thanks a lot. I guess I'm incomplete. And it's kind of silly language, isn't it? When you think about it. Because Paul wants to make clear you are complete. In Christ, you have everything you need to be a full human being and actually to be a fully sexual human being. So I do not need marriage to be a man, a full man, with all my masculinity. And we need to realize this. We, we do not need marriage in order to express your sexuality. If you're a Christian, you are intentionally expressing your sexuality in community. I was reminded of this some years ago. We have a men's Bible study at Second Presbyterian and about 400 men come into it. It's not, obviously not an intimate little group, but we have 400 men who come and I just teach the Bible for about 50 minutes every Thursday morning in the old days. I, I don't anymore, but I did. The woman who heads our hospitality and runs our kitchen and all of our staff, uh, who's now retired from that, her name was Linda Work. And Linda told me one time, she says, Sandy, I know it looks a little silly, but when the men come in to get their breakfast in the back, I like to just stand there right in the middle of it all. She's the only woman in the room. 400 men coming in to get breakfast. And I said, well, why do you do that? And she said, I just like to smell the aftershave. <laughs> she says, I just, I just love men. I like to be around them. And I said, I'm so glad you do. And one of you said to me this morning, I bet you really felt outnumbered with all the women that you were talking to this morning. I said, gloriously, yes. <laughs> Not because I, I mean, I don't have the olfactory capacity that Linda Work has, but, you know, smelling the perfume. But it's just being with women. You're delightful. And the essence of femininity is to enjoy being a woman. And we men enjoy it when you enjoy who you are. And the man needs to enjoy being a man. Now understand that there, there are a minority of people who for one reason or another, either nurture or nature, have some difficulty with identifying with their own gender. Some people are physically men and would really prefer to be women and vice versa. And I have the deepest sympathy for you. If any of you are struggling with that, I just want to say I'm, I'm sorry. I know that that presents massive confusion and sometimes depression and disappointment and you're not quite sure how to handle yourself. And what I say to folks with gender dysphoria is figure out who you are and that usually comes to you by virtue of your DNA. You can discover whether you're male or female and sometimes by your physical body, you can tell whether you're male or female. And whatever God made you, regardless of the confusion psychologically, ask God to help you play the part. 
Just like last night, we talked about playing the part of the wife. You get a script, play it out. If you're a husband, you're playing the Christ role, take your script, read it, get into the role and play it out. Well, the same with being a man. If you're a man, get the script, figure out what it is to be a Christian man and play it out even if you're having trouble feeling it. That seems to me to be the most responsible thing to do because we're given gender to glorify God and you don't have to be married in order to glorify God as a sexual human being. You bring your sexuality with you wherever you go and it's an important part of who you are. So I think we have to be in the evangelical church very careful about making it seem as though the expression of our sexuality is only experienced in a covenant marriage. It's just not true. And Paul, I think here, makes it clear. He says, look, my wish for all of y'all is that you would be single like me. That's what he was saying to the church. And I just don't think we hear that very much in the evangelical church. And for that reason, I think sometimes our single adults kind of wonder where we're coming off. Because they see this text and they say, the church doesn't feel like this. I don't feel as validated by the church as I do by that text. And so I think we have to learn again to commend people in the single life. Now we'll see that there's a good way to be a single and not, not so good way to be a single, just like there's a good way to be married and, and not so good way to be married. But think about the people who have blessed our lives. John the Baptist, Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Mary of Bethany, who anointed uh, Jesus with oil. Uh, these phenomenal single people, John Stott, who many of us revere, the late John Stott, who's a great expositor in, in England. His hero, Charles Simeon, was single. So we have just a whole array of people who've committed themselves to this life who are sexually alive people and who chose to be single. So the first thing is to find contentment because this is a status in which we should be able to find contentment if the Apostle Paul is commending it to us. Now, what I'd like to do then is to look at the whole concept of Christian contentment and we'll be helped, I think, by looking at uh, Philippians chapter four, where Paul, this is a famous text on contentment. You might want to turn there with me if you have your text, Philippians chapter four. And I want us just to read verse 11. And remember, Paul is talking about joy a lot. And that joy comes from being in Christ in Philippians the word in Christ or the concept of union with Christ is suffused through Philippians. And remember where Paul is when he writes this letter. He's in prison. We believe he was chained hand and foot to a guard on four-hour rotations. His privacy was completely gone. And in Roman uh, house arrest or, or prisons, you weren't given food. Someone had to bring you food if you were to have any at all or clothing or blankets Paul is deprived of all comforts and that's the reason that Epaphroditus walked 600 miles to provide for their missionary and Paul was very grateful for them. But in this portion of Philippians, he's thanking them for sending Epaphroditus who almost died serving Paul. And he thanks the Philippians for him. But he says, I want you to know that I would have been content without what he did for me and without what you did for me. So I thank you for your gift but I want you to know my contentment is not based on your providing those, those physical uh, things for me. So let's look at the text. He says, verse 10, let's back up. 
chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know, what to be, what, uh, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the first thing we learned about contentment is that it's learned. We often think just like our pagan neighbor does. Well, I'll be happy. I can be content. You know, if I have a good job and I generally like my job and good relationships, I can be content. Paul's saying, no, no. Contentment is not something that results from your circumstances. It's something that results from your study of how to be content. It's hard work. Paul had to work hard to learn to be content, chained to guards on four-hour rotations. And it's a good thing he did because when he learned contentment, he learned something else and that was how to go into ministry. Think about these guards. They thought they were guarding him. No, no, no. Paul had an audience, a four-hour congregation to hear his sermon. He had those guards trapped and they couldn't get away. That's why he saw it because he was content. And he realized God in his providence is doing something here. And Paul took full advantage of the moment. He evangelized those guards and then he says in this letter, the whole Praetorian guard knows why I'm here. Well, how did the Praetorian guard? They were guarding Paul and he wouldn't shut up. So it came, his, seeing his opportunity in the providence of God, we'll get this in a minute in a single life, for you to see the opportunities that are there will only occur if you're cultivating a contentment in being single. And Paul says it's something that we, we learn. I have learned the secret in plenty and in want. Secondly, it's unconditional. He says, whatever the circumstances, in any and every circumstance, I've learned contentment. No exceptions. Any and every circumstance. We're even told about the Lord Jesus Christ in his passion. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Even in the midst of his anguish on the cross, there was a divine contentment given to him. Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. A contentment in the Lord, no matter what the circumstances. And thirdly, we see, not only in Corinth, but in Philippi, is to be Christ-centered. This is the secret. He says, I've learned the secret. What is the secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the mystery, the Christian mystery. So your contentment comes not from comparing yourself to these troubled married people who are always trying to figure out how to get along with their spouse, nor having, you, you don't have to clean up the vomit when the choir is singing or whatever it is with the little children. You know, you think, oh, I'm so glad I'm single. When I look at all these diapers, that'll be changed. That's not where your contentment comes from. It's not from your freedom and your ability to play the field and to be self-directed. It's not that. Your contentment comes from the exquisite joy of knowing Jesus Christ and you need nothing else. That's what we have to learn. It's a discipline. And you'll learn that if you get married, you will need the same discipline. Paige Benton Brown, who was such an influence in Abby's life, uh, one time said when she was single, 
She said, I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. I remember uh, in the first church I served, I had a part-time secretary, administrative assistant, Thelma. And Thelma had five children like I do. And Thelma had an adult daughter named Barb. She was 26 years old, and in a small town in northeast Tennessee, about 35 years ago, 26 years old was about the time your mama wanted you to get married. And Thelma was a little worried about Barb, because there didn't seem to be a man on the horizon that she could marry. So one day, Barb comes bounding down the stairs for breakfast with her mama. And she says, Mom, I think I've met him. I've met him. And Thelma was sick in the coffee and she, her hands started shaking. She couldn't wait to hear what this was all about. So she goes over and she sits down with Barb and she says, Barb, tell me, who is it? And Barb said, Mom, Jesus. <laughs> Thelma admitted that she had to think for a minute. <laughs> but Barb got it. She got it. That's the one she's looking for. And that may sound trite or just too simplistic, but I believe it's exactly what the apostle is saying. That every single Christian must find genuine contentment in his or her singleness. Every single married person must find contentment, not because you have a lovely spouse, not because you have wonderful grandchildren, but you find contentment in the Lord alone and supremely in him. That's the first thing. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 7. And let's pick up a second principle of the Apostle Paul. And it's this, as single Christians, we must devote ourselves to the Lord's work. As single Christians, we must devote ourselves to the Lord's work. You see the Apostle Paul doing this. He finds contentment in Christ. That contentment enables him to stop thinking about himself and to notice the opportunities for ministry outside of his own skin. So that's the sequence you'll find in his thinking and in his lifestyle. Same with being married. Yes, you do have extra burdens if you're married. But if you are a discontent or a malcontent in your marriage, you're constantly thinking about yourself. That's the whole problem with contentment. It's par- discontentment is paralyzing. So when we become content, now we're ready for ministry. Look at verse 25 with me. Now concerning the betrothed, and that would be people who are engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. So I'm not telling you married people to go get a divorce and be single. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. That's his advice. But look at verse 28. But if you do marry, we'll come back to this, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that, he says. Now look at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. 
But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So let's look for just a minute at how the Apostle Paul is describing the Lord's work. First of all, you notice he says in, uh, he says in uh, verse 34, the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. So let's talk about holiness in body and spirit, namely, particularly, biblical sexuality. In order for us to be engaged fully in ministry as single people, we have to have our own passions under control. We have to know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Now, if probably most of you grew up in a relatively conservative religious environment, you probably had your parents say something about sexuality or at least you picked up somewhere along the line that they would disapprove of sexual license in your life. And they may even have given you some rationale about, you know, it, it, you don't want to get pregnant before uh, marriage and you don't have a child too early and you don't want to get AIDS and they have all kinds of reasons and it's just not proper, it's just not right and so on. But those reasons never hold anybody back, really. And the question, however, is a person who not only conducts herself and himself in a particular way, but with a particular rationale. Before our seniors go off to college, our seniors in high school, I always meet with them, as I've told, I think, told you before, and we always talk about four major things that college freshmen need to be prepared for on the college campus, and one of them, obviously, is sexual practice. And what I share with them is, you know, by now, you've been trained in our youth group. You know what is right and what is wrong. But what's the most important thing in your sexuality is to know why you're doing what you're doing and not doing what you're not doing. And you'll find with the Apostle Paul over and over again that his ethics, he could just simply tell us the Lord commands you to do this, but the Lord doesn't do that. He gives us rationale so that as we're carrying out our conduct, we're worshiping him joyfully knowing why it is that it pleases him so much. So I want you to think with me for just a moment about why we do what we do sexually and why we don't do what we don't do. Here's the reason. Your sexuality is an immediate expression of your theology. Your sexuality is a reflection of the character of the God you worship. Maybe your God is yourself then your sexuality will be an expression of the fact that you are your God. And there are various ways in which that gets expressed. I simply refer to two instances. First of all, in the Old Testament, when Joshua is going into the promised land and they are to destroy the pagan temples. 
The temples of Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal was one of the key gods, Ashtaroth, the consort. And when they got it along, when they were getting it on, then there would be rain and the crops would be fertile. So in pagan mentality, we need to tease Baal and Ashtaroth into getting it on so that there'll be rain and our crops will be fertile and we'll be prosperous. So what do you do? You go into the pagan temple and of course there were temple prostitutes there and the men get it on to try to inspire Baal and Ashtaroth to do the same. And in pagan theology, the gods are very fickle. They may be one way toward you today and another way tomorrow. They're capricious. They change their minds. You can manipulate them. And you have to watch out for those gods because they can be kind to you today and then destroy you tomorrow. So you're always on your watch. And they may choose you as their people and then decide, I don't like that clan. I'm going to take another clan. So you never know what Baal and Ashtaroth are going to do. Joshua says, that's not the way your God is. Your God actually picks a people and sticks with them all the way through. He's faithful and he actually makes a covenant with his people. Therefore, your sexuality reveals the relationship between you and God. And your sexuality, this intimate union that's expressed between male and female, is to be used to express the covenant between male and female that represents the faithfulness of Yahweh, the God of all the gods, the only one true and living God. The other gods are dead. They don't exist. They're figments of people's imaginations, but they are unfaithful and fickle. Your God exists and he is faithful in a covenant. Therefore, I want you to express your sexuality intimately in covenant. So it's an expression of our theology. So I can go to the college campus and I can largely tell you who the Christians are. They express their theology through their sexuality. Uh, the same would be true with the Apostle Paul. When he left Judah and went to the Gentiles, he was going into territory that was rampantly pagan with licentious sexual practice for the same reasons as the centuries-old pagans in the old Canaan. And the reason you find sexuality coming up over and over again in Paul's letters, like for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, or 1 Corinthians here in chapter 7, or other places, is because the sexual misconduct was rampant in the pagan world and because, as is obvious from the Old Testament, our sexuality is something that God really cares about. You know, in the Old Testament, we talk about the, the big three that the prophets used to preach about. Idolatry, social justice, and sexuality. And you'll find the Apostle Paul dealing with those same things in the pagan world. So he was saying, the reason he focuses on this is you can see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, don't conduct yourselves like the pagans. This is something that marks you out. That your sexual intimacy is given only in a covenant because You've been given sexuality for the purpose of demonstrating union of Christ and his church. He explains that 
The reason for your sexuality is to, to make you different and to point out to, out to a different God. So I tell, always tell high school seniors, if, when you go to the college campus uh, on today's campuses, UK, UT, Vanderbilt, wherever it's going to be, that this is probably your best opportunity to evangelize because we all know that if you don't go to bed around the third or fourth date, something's wrong with you, you're kind of sexually inert or you don't know how to build relationships or you don't really love him or her and you're not doing that by the fifth or sixth date and of course all your girlfriends or all your guy friends if you're a guy are going to say what's wrong with you you don't like sex or you all not getting along okay here's your opportunity no no we we really like each other a lot well why aren't you going to bed because I'm in love well that's what I mean you're in love why don't you go to bed no no I'm in love with Jesus Christ. And I really want to offer my body to him. And he's made it really clear how I love him. And you know, this, this girl I'm dating, she's the same way. She's in love too. She's in love with Jesus Christ. We're having a great time together. So the first reason for our view of sexuality and our practice is that it displays our theology and it displays God's character. The second reason is, Paul will mention in 1 Thessalonians 4, that when we violate those standards, it's not only that we grieve the presence of God in whose presence we always live, but we're taking advantage of one another. He uses that language in 1 Thessalonians 4. Don't take advantage of each other. You say, well, she wanted to, I wanted to, and we're in love, and why not? He says, look, if you're in a pack of thieves and your business is stealing, you can say, oh, we all steal. We just steal from one another. But that doesn't mean you're not taking advantage of each other. So just because you agree to steal from each other doesn't, and you're a pack of thieves doesn't mean that this is healthy behavior. So what we have to realize is that taking sexual intimacy from a person with whom you're not in covenant is stealing. You're taking something that doesn't belong to you. You are manipulating and taking advantage of the other party, even if he or she agrees with you, is a consensual partner. You're still stealing from them. And you're dishonoring them. Now look, single folks, when you get married and we talk to you in premarital counseling about the marital sexual relationship, you'll get something like this. There are two key principles in marital sexuality. Number one, practice the presence of Jesus Christ. You say, really? I said, yeah. And the reason, the reason that's a big surprise to you is because when you think about practicing sex as a single person, the last one you want with you is Jesus. So you're, you're contemplating his absence. So when you get married in a Christian marriage, you have to convert your mindset so that you're actually contemplating and appropriating his presence because the reality is this. He loves sexual union in marriage as much as he loves your celibacy as a single person. And you're delighting him in both cases. And married people have to learn how to get over the old guilt complex that's associated with sexual practice and bring in a new cleansed concept that invites the presence of the Lord. So the first concept is practicing his presence. The second concept in, sexual, in marital sexuality is to serve your mate. And we won't discuss this here, obviously, but female sexuality and male sexuality are very different. And when you get married, what you end up doing 
is taking up a cross and denying yourself and your gender's typical desires in sexuality. And having taken up that cross, you're learning the way in which you love a person of the opposite gender in sexual practice. And so it's a huge discipline. I've always said, I know this sounds unfair, but the single sexual discipline is actually a little simpler and in some ways easier than the marital sexual discipline because the marital sexual discipline is so convoluted with your own passions and desires, it's very hard to focus on what you're supposed to be doing. Now, the single sexuality has the same two general principles. Same two. Practice his presence. If Billy Graham were with you on your date, I suppose the conversations might be different and maybe the practice would be a little different in your sexual expression. Billy Graham is a piece of dirt compared to Jesus Christ. And he is with you. So you practice his presence when you're with the opposite gender under any circumstances. And secondly, you're promoting the welfare of the person with whom you're having the relationship. And in, if you're married, as I said the other night, what you end up wanting to do is exalt your wife, make a queen out of her. So if you're single and you're, you have a dating relationship with a woman, you're exalting her and making a queen out of her. You're her servant. Last time I checked with Queen Elizabeth, her servants do not grope her. So you don't go groping the queen. You're lifting her up. You're showing her what it means to be a dignified woman in the presence of another man. You're practicing the same principles of practicing the presence of Christ and serving the mate. Now, this is the reason, in my opinion, among others, but this is one of the main human psychological reasons that marital sexuality has been shown through studies to be more mutually satisfying to man and uh, uh, to wife and husband with those who have restrained from sexual practice before marriage. Now, I have some friends who are very close to me who are non-Christians, and, and the woman said to me not long ago, uh, we, were, we were talking about all kinds of things, politics and everything else, and she said to me, you know, I would never marry a man that I hadn't gone to bed with first and just check it out and see if things work. But the fact is that studies show the exact opposite that the sexual satisfaction is lower. And I think this is why, especially with Christians, that single sexuality practiced God's way is the best preparation for engaging the disciplines of marital sex, practicing the presence of Christ and focusing upon the needs of the other person. And so if you've trained yourself under the discipline in a single life, you are best equipped for self-denial and service and praising the Lord in marital sexuality. I think that's the reason it works that way. But there's, the, the apostle says, look, when you're single, verse 34, you want to live a holy life in body and in spirit. So for you to enjoy the contentment and the ministry that's in the single life, it demands this sort of discipline. Now, I know in a group like this, well, any group, we've all sinned. And especially in evangelical circles, sexual sins feel to us to be particularly shameful. And sometimes we have a really difficult time experiencing God's forgiveness. And I want to say, 
just psychologically, I've found through the years, it is more difficult for women. I don't have time to go into why that is. But women will have a harder time experiencing God's forgiveness. And I just say to you, he is offering it to you. He has accomplished it for you. He has died on the cross naked for you. And you're not really particularly honoring him by continuing to beat yourself up over it. What would honor him is that your freedom becomes the fruit of his sacrifice on the cross. And he enjoys your experiencing a clean conscience and the removal of guilt from your record. He, he delights in your experiencing the freedom of the children of God. That's the reason he died. So you don't honor him by beating yourself up. You honor him by being free because that's what he bought. So take what he bought and he gives to you and use it. And you have to keep contemplating that. Biblical sexuality. Secondly, authentic community. And this is an assumption that's in Paul's arguments and it's only an assumption, but I, I think it's so important for the single life. And once again, evangelicals don't do this very well. Oh, we have our singles groups or we have single Bible studies or single fellowship. You know what? I don't think we really understand the depth of community that needs to be established among same gender, single adult people. If you've read the history of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, either by Metaxas or, or Eberhard Betka or anyone else who's written on Bonhoeffer, you know that in his early years, he established what was known as the Bruderhaus, the, the, the brother house. And Bonhoeffer beautifully described our relationship with one another as a relationship that's mediated through Christ. In other words, when I relate to you, it goes up to Jesus and it comes back to you. So you and I are relating to each other through Christ. We're relating in Christ. And there's a profound mystery to our relationship as brother and sister. And just as the marital relationship has its own mystery, our relationship has a mystery to it too and it needs to be cultivated. And I just don't see, since the Reformation, much activity among Protestants to establish households where brothers can really live together as spiritual brothers and sisters can live together as spiritual sisters. Uh, and what I'm thinking of is why can't Christian brothers who are single meet, get together and they all buy a house or they buy an apartment complex and they live in community and they have family worship together. They have household worship together every day. And they have certain spiritual disciplines that they accomplish together in household. Why is it that only married people have household? That was, that's not the way it was meant to be. So I think that we're, we're in serious deficit in the evangelical church in terms of creating profound, meaningful, deep relationships among single people. We all know of the loneliness that our single brethren and sisters tell us about. And I just don't think we've really taken it seriously enough. I don't have all the answers for this. I'm raising more questions than I'm answering, and I'm sorry about that. But look at Paul's relationships. If you look at the end of this letter, 1 Corinthians, you'll, you'll, sign, you'll, you'll see a number of people there. I mean, maybe 10 people mentioned that are his dear friends. When he, when he writes from Corinth to Rome, look at Romans 16. You see 27 people he names by name and another group of people that he sends greetings from, from Corinth to Rome. And he hasn't ever been to Rome. 
And he has these relationships, this network of friends. And Paul always traveled together unless it was under duress. He occasionally would travel by himself only when he had to. But Silas and Timothy and Titus and others were his deep companions. And then you'll find in Romans 16, he had very mature and very fruitful relationships with single women and married women. Priscilla and Aquila were dear to him. They were married. They were partners in the gospel. Priscilla, Prisca, he called her, was one of his best friends and she was a mighty leader in the church. Tryphena, Tryphosa, you'll find all kinds of names in Romans 16 of women who were very plugged into his ministry. And the Lord Jesus Christ, Luke chapter eight, had women in his ministry who helped finance his ministry and traveled with him, not intimately like the men did, but traveled as part of the entourage. So he had friends, he had lots of friends. They were ministry friends. He was close to them. He could share his heart with them. And this is vital. We have to create community. And if you're a single person, you have to be intentional and the church has to be intentional about helping you. Look at Jesus' relationships. Peter, James, and John. Now, they ended up abandoning him at his deepest hour, but they were soulmates. And after the resurrection and and Pentecost became soulmates evermore. Look at the twelve. He was close to the 70, the 500 that he dealt with. Jesus had friends. Now, thirdly, in the Lord's work, intentional disciple making. Intentional disciple making. Jesus says, basically here, this is to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He says you're not distracted from the from the demands of marriage. You have more time to give to ministry issues. You can be more devoted to the Lord's work and that's exactly why Paul was not married. And I have a dear friend, she's in her early 80s. She served in Jordan, ministering to Bedouins for over 60 years. She's had two marital proposals in her lifetime and Aileen Coleman told me that she had to turn both of them down because it would take her away from reaching the Bedouins that she desperately loves and wants to lead to Jesus Christ. And we all need to be looking at ministry as the key thing that we're here for. Look, when you get to heaven, relationships are going to be a lot better. I know some of you are very close to your spouse, but let me tell you something. You'll be closer to all your brothers and sisters than you are in your best moment in marriage with your spouse. Your your marriage is temporary, but don't be saddened by it. What awaits you is something far better than the best marriage I've ever known. So you'll love better in heaven. You'll worship better in heaven. There's only one thing you'll not do better there, and that's evangelize. Because there won't be any sin. There'll be no sinners. You get your little moment right now. This is it. It's all you get. You got to make the best of it. So what Paul is saying is, he says, it seems to me that I can mobilize myself more fruitfully in doing what this life is all about without the constraints of marriage. And he said, I I commit it to you. So whether you're single or married, our purpose is to make disciples. And Paul makes this clear to Timothy. And Paul, of course, wasn't married. He didn't have children. Or did he? Paul says, Timothy, my son. I have a Timothy who's a very dear friend of mine, Tim Russell, who's a pastor on our staff at Second Presbyterian Church. Tim's an African-American. He married a little late, too late for children, 
with him and his wife, Kathy. And, you know, sometimes you just know these people who are married who don't have children. I've known some through my life, and I thought, gosh, what wonderful parents they would have made. And I don't understand why, you know, it just turned out that way. Here's what Tim told me. He said, Sandy, I've got children everywhere. He's been ministering all of his life. And sure enough, when he first came to Memphis, people were traveling from all over the country to come spend a weekend with Tim and Kathy, their mother and father in the faith. It's really remarkable. This man knows what he's doing. He's creating children everywhere and by leading them to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, lastly, as single Christians, we must marry only in the Lord. You say, I thought you were talking about singleness. I am. And so is Paul. And look what he says in verse 39. And he says other things about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm just picking up these two verses. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul makes a very strong argument for singleness. But he says, we read it earlier. If you marry, you have not sinned. And furthermore, if you're like Sandy Wilson and you have a lot of passion and you think it could get out of control, you might want to get married at 21. So that's a good idea, Sandy. I'm glad you got married. You, know, you take yourself right out of here off the market and all the rest of us are safe, you know? So Paul says, if you can't control yourself, you, you, you need to get married. And he says, you haven't sinned. You just have good self-awareness. And furthermore, he says that if you prefer to, to be married, go right ahead. Now, some scholars suspect that this is what Paul's dealing with in Corinth. That in Corinth, there is an ascetic group that was opposed to marriage and thought that nobody should be married. If you'll look at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, so should a man not touch a woman? Most scholars think he's quoting them. They're saying a man shouldn't touch a woman. That's real holiness. So a lot of scholars suggest that what Paul's actually doing, he's saying, yeah, I get your point. And he's making an argument for marriage coming in the back door by saying, look, I fundamentally agree with you folks who are saying a man shouldn't touch a woman. Here's all the arguments for why you, you have a point there. But don't be fundamentalistic about it. He's saying on the backside, you know, nobody sins if they get married. Now I agree, now you ascetic folks, you really are to be commended and I commend you. Pat you on the head. But let's not judge these married people. So uh, some scholars suggest that what he's really doing is making an argument for marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. I think that's very possible. And so, having commended the singles here, let's not hold in lower esteem those who have decided to be married and have children. And furthermore, maybe some of you would actually like to consider such a thing. Let me make some suggestions, three of them. First of all, get a life. <laughs> Don't wait until you're married to live your life. I know some of you think, you know, I would just make a great dad. I'm just, right now, I just need to find the right woman. Some of you are thinking, I 
just really want to be a homemaker and have a husband. I just, I just can't see myself doing anything else. I understand, I understand. But you're making a big mistake if you sell out to those thoughts. Get your life going right now. Get a life as a single woman and a single man and live it with gusto. And there are several reasons. Reason number one, the man you meet, the woman you meet, you want to be a man or woman who wants to be sold out to the Lord. And if you're sold out to the Lord, you are likely to meet such a person if you'd like to. If you're not sold out and you're hanging back, good luck on finding a man or a woman who wants to just hang back like you do and good luck on having a fruitful marriage that is ministry oriented after you get married if you don't get busy right now as a single person. That's number one. Number two, the only person who really is prepared for a healthy marriage is a contented person. If you... If you're a man and you need a woman to be content, I feel so sorry for the woman. You're just going to suck the life out of her because your contentment is based on her doing something for you. And the only way you're going to be content is being married to her. That's not Christian contentment. And that will diminish the relationship. You'll always be looking for the handout from her. However, if you're content, now you're ready to give, which is what marriage is all about. So first of all, get a life. And I would say, for those of you who are in your 20s, maybe we can talk about this later. Just remind me when we go downstairs, for those of you who can stay. Secondly, use your head. Use your head. We live in a romantic era when we believe that our passions and emotions and feelings would justify almost anything romantically, and it's wrong. It takes disciplined thinking and planning and prayer and the application of God's word and community to make a good decision. First of all, if you're interested in being married, you really think you'd like to be married, there's nothing wrong with getting out to meet people and having your closest friends pray with you about meeting the right person. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything good about it. And if you'd like to be married, you're likely to get married if you actually meet someone. So being in community is not a bad idea, mixed company, and you can meet people. I don't have anything theologically against being, uh, meeting people online, but as soon as you do meet them online, if you're to carry on a relationship, you need to meet them. <laughs> and you need to get to know them for this reason. You need to understand that in a healthy marriage, there are several lines, important lines of compatibility. There's physical compatibility. He needs to think you're attractive. She needs to think you're attractive. You need to be drawn to each other. There needs to be psychological compatibility. The ways in which he's whacked out, you need to be strong so that you can complement his weaknesses and, and vice versa. If you both are just clinically depressed, man, all the rest of us are gonna have a hard time helping you. So please <laughs> avoid that. You can be clinically depressed. There's nothing wrong with that. I just suggest don't marry a clinically depressed person if you're clinically depressed. You see what I'm saying? There has to be psychological compatibility. There should be intellectual compatibility. 
So this person becomes your best friend. Your best friend is someone with whom you like to discuss things of common interest. You like to use your mind with them. So in developing compatibility for marriage, there needs to be intellectual compatibility. There needs to be social compatibility. If, you, if all your friends are wild extroverts and all of his are meek little introverts, then we're gonna have to figure out how you all ever gonna go to a party and enjoy it together. You need to be aware of these things. Use your noggin and look for advice from other people. But let me mention one more area of compatibility, a spiritual. One trend I've noticed on pluralistic university campuses, more evangelical women are being attracted to traditional Roman Catholics because they have a firm ethical stance and the liberal Protestants, they're nothing. I mean, they, they believe anything, do anything. And the Catholics look very attractive. I've noticed more and more of this lately because the Protestants have become so nominal, the men. The problem is the Protestant and the Catholic have two different gospels. If you want to know more about that, we'll talk about it downstairs. But you have two different gospels. So you have to be united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There has to be a spiritual union with you and you understand justification in the same way. And that has practical implications in marriage we can talk about later. So you're looking for theological and spiritual compatibility. You're going to be in ministry together. You need to be proclaiming the same gospel, mentoring people in the same way of life. Now lastly, use your friends. Your good friends. Your parents. I know some of your parents are whacked out, but they probably know you better than anybody else. It'd be kind of silly, unless in the extreme, most extreme cases, it'd be silly for you not to involve your parents in the assessment before you fall head over heels in love with somebody. Early on, you're asking your closest friends and your siblings and your parents and your aunt and uncle what they think about so-and-so and what they think about your all's relationship because you are a conflicted party in making an assessment. You have to understand your emotions are starting to get engaged and you can't think straight. I mean, seriously, you, just, you should learn not to trust yourself completely in making such a judgment. Your marriage, if you get married, is going to affect the entire church. It's going to affect your entire extended family. We all have an investment in it. And for you to exclude us, even pastors, and getting involved in advice giving early on in the relationship, I think is a huge mistake. So use your friends. And ladies, use your daddies. I did this with my daughter. At one point, I said, is this time for me to do the daddy thing? And she said, yeah, I think so. Okay, good. And we partner up with each other. So use your friends in making an assessment. So ladies and gentlemen, I think we all have to look again at the single life. And those of us who are married and glad to be so must think again about how we're doing church for single people in all of our churches. Think about whether we just naturally give preference to a Sunday school teacher because he's married or naturally give preference to an elder candidate because he's married. Those are huge mistakes when you think like that. So we all need to rethink, I think, what it means to be devoted to the Lord. And our romantic life, our sexual life, and our marital life comes under his sovereign care and is expressed by us 
for the sake of advancing his great name here and around the world. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the gift of singleness. Thank you that Jesus was single so that he could marry the entire church. Thank you that Jesus was single and he denied himself some of the sexual privileges of marriage so that he could identify with us all in all of our loneliness. And we pray that you'll help us to walk in his steps. For we pray in his precious name. Amen.